When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. everyone and welcome to temporary admission no matter where you're listening today it's been pretty hard to miss the ongoing humanitarian crisis within ukraine and so to try and find out a little bit more about the situation over there and how artworks and cultural heritage within the country is being protected and even just to learn a little bit more about ukrainian art today we're joined by one of the leading experts of russian and ukrainian art art dealer and collector james butterwick Now, James, I know you've been collecting art since around 1985, and you've actually also lived in Russia during the 1990s, and more recently you've set up a foundation to support Ukrainian refugees during the ongoing crisis. But instead of me introducing you, why don't you do a a better job and and tell us more about you first? My name's James Baswick, and I have been dealing in Russian and Ukrainian art really since the middle of the 1980s. And I have a gallery in Brook Street in central London. I take part in the TFAF Maastricht Art Fair every year. And I'm very much a promoter since 2014 of Ukrainian modernist art, with particular accent on the work of Alexander Bohomazov, who lived between 1880 and 1930. I'm also well-known, one hesitates to use the, the word well-known, but uh, reasonably well-known as a, as a fake buster as well. So I'm universally detested by vast numbers of people who have discovered that their pictures, in which they'd hoped to make billions, are actually worthless. And I am now in the middle of a documentary which will be hitting your television screens very, very soon. Well, we'll be sure to look out for that. But how did you get into Ukrainian art specifically? Because it's quite a niche within the art world. Well, I've been doing it for years because I think it really started. I started lecturing on the subject. And actually, I lecture up and down the country on the the dark side of the boom, um, the mass faking of the Russian art, uh, the Russian avant-garde. And the Russian avant-garde has just been industrially faked. And... It came about with the opening of the Soviet Union, 1991. This just wave of fakes that started appearing on the market. Most of them backed up, but with certificates of authenticity by completely disreputable human beings. But myself and my colleague, uh, Konstantin Akinsha, uh, we sort of made it our business to start busting all these myths because it gives a very false impression of the market, it's it's well, it's criminal activity, and uh, I think the most the famous case, which you may or may not know about, was in Ghent in twenty eighteen. There was a massive exhibition of frankly absurd Russian avant garde works in a Western museum, 
and Constantine uh, and myself were very much responsible for getting the exhibition closed and we hope bringing the perpetrators to justice but Belgian justice does move rather slowly. It's quite shocking though because you do assume that most or actually every museum will have done its due diligence before showing artworks that you know people like yourselves can go around and pretty certainly conclude that they're they're faked obviously we'll wait to see what the verdict is but are you able to tell us more about that case specifically because I think that would be really interesting to know a little bit more about. It's very much what my lecture is about actually mm. is this sort of Armageddon uh, the great faking scandal which is get uh, it strikes me as a, a, as really appalling that a museum which houses one of the most or housed mm. one of the most important works of Western um, Renaissance art, Northern Western Renaissance art, is got, got themselves involved in this just appalling scandal. And were you to actually see some of the works that were on display, they were just appalling. You know, my granny could have been painted. I mean, th- there was one glorious example that the organisers showed a Goncharova at the four, four evangelists and the only supporting evidence that they offered to, uh, it, uh, for all these 26 works of art, the only supporting evidence they offered was this one catalogue from the Kharkiv Museum of Art, in which they said that their picture by Goncharova had been exhibited, and here was the exhibition catalogue. The only problem was that it hadn't been exhibited at this particular exhibition, and the organisers had merely photoshopped the Goncharova into the exhibition castle. I mean, it's good, glorious stuff. And it's a major Western museum is accepting things like this. It's sort of mind clearly. I'm, I'm not going to say anything that might put me back in the <laughs> dock because I also was sued by a bunch of Italians for another magnificent exhibition in Mantua in Italy. And I was actually was exonerated completely by the court. You know, the moment you say your picture's you know, your pictures, sorry, it's worthless. Right, you're in court. So there you are. Sorry, that was a rather long-winded way of saying that's what else I do for a living. No, it's fine. I think it's fascinating. But I'm interested as well. I know, obviously, more recently, you have focused much more on Ukrainian art. But, you know, over the lifespan of your career, you've also had quite a link to Russian art as well. And it'd be really interesting to know a little bit more about that, because I You've obviously lived in Russia for a time and I can't imagine even now even talking about that as an opportunity or, you know, anyone even wanting to actually. But can you tell us a little bit more about the Russian side of what you've done and, and how you found that more recently as well? Uh, well, I did Russian at university back in the Neolithic ages and at a time when Russia was a very exciting country. So I did it between 1983 and 1987 and they pinned me out to Soviet Russia for six months for a, I think sabbatical's the wrong word, because I think sabbatical see, would, would infer some element of comfort, uh, whereas the, the conditions were, to say the least, Spartan. But we did have a, I, it was the most fascinating time, and it was a really genuinely interesting country. And I saw Russia at the time when you wanted to see Russia. So between sort of 1991 and 2001, Russia was a fabulously exciting country, going in the right direction. 
Mm. Um, and uh, it, it's um, so that's my interest was really sparked from doing it at university. Art was in the family blood, if you like. So my grandfather was a distinguished silver expert. Uh, my godfather, with whom I was very close, was chairman of Park Burnett in New York. So it was kind of, it, uh, it, it made sense to go into that particular area. When I speak fluent Russian, it made sense. And it has been fascinating. Uh, if a little, um, what's the word, uh, of a little unpredictable at times. But with you also being kind of the leading voice on Russian and Ukrainian art specifically, over the last few months, how has the situation in Ukraine kind of played out for you? And I think I first read about you in the art newspaper and you were working to actually get artworks out of Ukraine and, and protect them and, you know, increase the public uh, understanding, I guess would be the right word, of Ukrainian art, because it hasn't been a mainstream area of the art world that I think people have known much about. So could you tell us maybe a little bit more about that and how the situation has affected what you've been doing? Well, I'm not going to say it was a good thing because it was very injurious to a very significant set, you know, segment of the market. However, I suppose to a degree we'd kind of stopped doing Russian art in 2014. Because when the Ruskies decided to expand their territory into the Crimea, I was in Russia at the time. And I've got to say, I found all the, 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 the chess piecing and the jingoism really revolting. And I, I kind of became very Ukrainian-centric. So that changed uh, matters. So in a sense, there was far greater interest in what I did because it was Ukraine. And Bogomazov, who we did at TFAF this year, who is, you know, he's a top-draw modernist uh, artist, top-draw. And so, of course, the amount of press coverage we got for Maastricht this year was, was staggering. Um, unheard of amounts of PR. So it, it affected it, in, it, it sort of in two ways, if you see what I mean. And, you know, the Russians, of course, have clearly disappeared from the market completely. Though I gather that, you know, they're, they're spending their rubles at home, but they're definitely not spending it in the West. And have you found there's been more interest in Ukrainian art since the outbreak of the war? Because, I mean, I definitely didn't know much about or anything actually about Ukrainian art until recently. But it's been really interesting to kind of learn a little bit more about the history of Ukrainian art and actually who some of the main artists are and how we can support artists. And I know now there are several museums also running shows on Ukrainian art specifically. Have you found that as well? Because of the war, it, there's massive interest in promoting Ukrainian art at museum level. So, for example, you know, this morning I've been involved in Tarsum administration to do with the opening of an exhibition of Ukrainian modernism called In the Eye of the Storm, which will be at the Thyssen Museum on the 15th of November. So that's one thing that we're doing. And then there's a museum, uh, the, the Ludwig Museum is going to put on a show next year. There's massive interest and upsurge in interest in that particular area. There also seems to be so many stories of people rescuing Ukrainian art and smuggling it out of the country or hiding it in basements and that side of things. And every few days, I think, on the art newspaper, I keep seeing stories about Ukrainian art or, or artists. Have you been involved with those kind of operations as well? The press love a good story, you know, that there's people are hiding pictures and 
you know, it's not easy working. Um, but at least we're now getting pictures out of the country and we're going to be showing, which is fantastic. The girl who works for me in Kiev, she rescued a number of canvases uh, from of contemporary artists. And we then put those up at Sotheby's for a charity auction and raised a great deal of money. Which is great. And I'm sure we'll touch on that in a little bit more detail shortly. But it can't have been easy for your colleagues who are still based in Ukraine right in the thick of things. How have they found it? Have you been able to speak to them recently? Of course, there's massive cultural destruction going on. You know, I mean, our Russian friends didn't really do the enlightened route. And there is massive destruction. I don't know how much destruction there is in Kharkiv because Kharkiv has got some staggering buildings, uh, including one of the most important constructivist sort of series of architecture. It's it's an entire square, the name of which, of course, escapes me. And it's, I'm hoping that hasn't been damaged because these are monumental architectural monuments. And how does it work getting artworks out of Ukraine at the moment? I can't imagine that's particularly easy. To give you a, a quite an interesting example, I was phoned up by friends at the Museum of Russian Art in Kiev, which has got a tremendous collection of Russian art, the third best in the former Soviet Union. And they rang me up on the second day of the, ex- of the invasion and said, James, we desperately need you to get our collection of the work of uh, Mikhail Vrubil out. So I said, well, I'm here, I'm ready. Tell me what I need to do. And they said, well, I had to make a commitment to showing the collection at museum level. Then they get it out. So they don't quite sort of grasp the fact that actually, you know, the, 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 the Ruskies are, you know, going to just bomb the shit out of it. Well, they may not now because things are taking a pretty dramatic turn. Um, but, you know, I've got a brilliant idea. Was they've got a, this wonderful collection of Rubel, who is the great avant-garde, uh, Art Nouveau artist of Russia, if you want to kind of pitch it up. 1856 to 1910, very much connected with Kiev, vitally important artist. And I think they should make a huge pile of Rubel's works and have somebody there with a bloody great map saying, either you stop bombing or else. And then the whole lot will go up. It's sort of marvellous. That would be true. Um, what's it called? Reactionary art? What's it called when they you burn things or it's iconoclasm? I'm not sure, actually, but we've got Damien Hurst, I know, who's about to burn everything as part of the NFT project as well at the moment, haven't we? Oh, yeah, good for him. I think we should do the similar to Vrubel. And the, the Ruskies would go absolutely mental. Well, yes, but what is it that actually happens? I know you touched on a little bit there where the museum rang you up and asked you to try and get the artworks out on the second day of the invasion, but what is it that actually happens when a museum calls you like that? How do you physically get the artworks out of Ukraine and you know protect them? So what I do is I ring up somebody called Dr. Konstantina Kinsha. And Dr. Konstantina Kinsha is... Kostya is the Merlin of the Ukrainian art world. So I'm too much of a coward to do it myself, so I leave it in the capable hands of Kostya, who is an utter genius at doing this sort of thing, and and tactful and clever, and I would lose my temper within exactly one minute. Konstantin's managed to keep his for the last four and a half months. Well, it sounds like he knows what he's doing as well, but how did you find it working or kind of doing business within Russia and Ukraine? I can imagine it's quite different to dealing art within London, I suppose. I, I think on this podcast, we've predominantly focused on the art world within London. So this is a bit of a change for us. Is that wildly different to the traditional London art market? Or 
if you do any sort of business in Eastern Europe, you are up against one of the most deeply entrenched bureaucracies that you can possibly imagine. In 2016, acting on the, the commercial success of Bogomazov, we decided to do an exhibition of Bogomazov at the State uh, Museum of Ukrainian Art in Kiev. And you know, I, to say I escaped with my life is no exaggeration. I mean, they were just a nightmare to deal with because you're dealing with deeply entrenched Soviet mentality. And, you know, whether you like it or not, the Soviet Union has scarred the minds of millions and continues to scar them to this day. First of all, they're thoroughly corrupt. Uh, secondly, they are self-interested and they it, it amounted to sort of almost sabotage what they did. So, it began, I did it for 18 months and finally I thought I'm going to give it up. So I gave it up. Uh, you know, they just don't make it easy. But I think what's interesting, though, is the upsurge, I guess, that Ukrainian artists had more recently, just because Ukraine has naturally been obviously in the news for all the wrong reasons, but Ukraine has been in the news more recently. So people have been looking into the history of Ukrainian art and myself included, but are you able to tell us more about that and maybe even a few Ukrainian artists that we should be aware of? At the beginning, you know, you have the Russian avant-garde. Now, the Russian avant-garde has often been tied up with the Ukrainian avant-garde, and yet they're very much separate movements. Now, I would argue that the Ukrainian avant-garde consists of three very, very great artists, of which uh, they are Petritsky, who's very much a theatrical artist, Yermilov and uh, Bokhamazov. But it was my great good fortune that Bogomazov came into, swam into my ken, because Bogomazov is a great artist, you know, as, as can be evinced by the fact that his work's been bought up by the Krollermuller Museum, the great Swiss collector Michael Ringier has bought a lot of his pictures. So he's a very great artist, you know, a world-class artist. So, of course, I'm going to promote him above all others. But the fact is, he's the only artist where he's got any work available. You know, all the rest of it. Petritsky, 99% of it's in the Theatrical Museum in Kiev. Yermilov, you know, scattered to the four winds, primarily in the collection of Konstantin Grigorishin, and therefore it's all under arrest in Moscow. And then Bogomazov, who the majority of his work is in private collections in Europe and in the States. And in uh, Kiev, actually. I know you've mentioned there a few of the main, kind of most prominent Ukrainian artists that we should be aware of. But how should we be supporting, you know, the broader arts community within Ukraine? Is there anything that we can be doing or should be doing? I mean, it's a very good question because it's very important to support the heritage uh, of Ukraine. Furthermore, there are a large number of extremely talented contemporary artists. Yeah, the Ukrainian art is very much free of the shackles of Russian art, contemporary Russian art. There's a great upsurge of creative energy in the country, especially pre-war. The trouble is how to market it because there's too much art now being uh, promoted, not by virtue of it being good or bad art, but by virtue of it being Ukrainian. And there are a number of foundations that have been set up to help Ukrainian artists. But the danger is, of course, is swamping the market and then an element of cynicism develop that 
you know, you're promoting the country, not the artist. It's always a dangerous approach, but, you know, that, I'm afraid, says where it is, because I did a Ukrainian exhibition, contemporary Ukrainian exhibition before the war started, and, you know, we took it to a couple of places, and, you know, it was, uh, it was moderately successful because, you know, it, it's, it's difficult. It's, I'm not a contemporary art dealer. I don't find it very easy to promote because partly you know, purely out of my own ignorance. But, you know, that's the difficulty is there's just too much of it. You know, there's too much of it that isn't good enough as well. So Ukraine needs massive help at all levels. But if I'm being honest, we've collected about 250000 pounds for Ukrainian refugees and I feel that actually the, the money that's collected is better served going to refugees who are in serious straits it's just my own personal view it's neither good nor bad but the money we collected we did two charity auctions and I gave a percentage of the profits at TFAF and you know, we basically gave the money to Ukrainian refugees and it went to UNHCR rather than some, you know, the preservation of a monument or this or that. That's just a personal choice, because I think that come the the reckoning, then it's the refugees, especially the young, who are going to be the future of the country. And I think they have to be somehow uh, educated, because it is, it's one of the great, you know, humanitarian disasters. Mm, it, it really is awful. And I know when you look at the headlines that come on the news, it's, it's really shocking to see what's going on. But I think also interestingly, it does feel like the news cycle has started to move away from Ukraine, which in itself is problematic. And I'm hoping that people don't forget about what is actually going on. I think your approach of thinking maybe more broadly to supporting refugees is, is definitely a good idea. I think you'll look long term. As we're dealing with a problem of an unprecedented nature, it's... It's very easy to say, well, of course, you've got to protect or help artists. You've got to help this. You've got to help that. I think it's almost worth arguing that uh, artists have a, a relatively privileged position, in a sense, compared to a family from, you know, I don't know, deepest Transcarpathia, you know, four or five children had their entire life shattered. And, it, you know, it is such a god awful crime. And it almost doesn't bear thinking about it. A very good friend of mine has a contemporary art centre in Western Ukraine. And I mean, that's ceased to exist. It's now a centre for refugees. And you know, it's just the, 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 the scale of the problem is so unprecedented. And the evil with which we're dealing is so sharp and in such focus uh, that I really, I, I, I genuinely think that unfortunately, art is of a secondary importance to the helping of refugees. I think that's quite refreshing, though, because quite often within the art world, we do get quite insular, I suppose, and think that we should be always supporting the artists. And I, I know that's what I mentioned at the start of the podcast, but I think what you're referencing is a really good point that actually we should be supporting everyone more broadly and actually we should just all be working together. But it definitely does also feel that the way that maybe the art world is also responding to the crisis in Ukraine is through 
raising the profile and kind of educating people about the history of Ukraine through art? We're doing that, aren't we? Because we're, we're busy giving pictures left, right and centre to exhibitions, to public exhibitions. So you could argue that that's something we're actually doing. But as far as financial aid's concerning, funny enough, I was just on the telephone to a lovely, lovely Dutch client of mine this morning. And he has made a very substantial donation to our foundation, uh, our charity. And it does make me sort of, it, it, it kind of gladdens the heart that it is going to go to, to, to younger people. And, you know, and there are 4 million refugees in Poland, 4 million. You know, mm. the scale of this evil is, is just appalling. And I'm, you know, I'm, I've become increasingly ashamed of all my, for no particular reason, but I've become increasingly ashamed of all my Russian links and my, russian uh sort of link the the the, the russian aspect of my life um, i've become increasingly uh, horrified by it because of the massive support that it has within russia for which there is no excuse it, it, only somebody with a seriously warped sensibility could possibly support this war and it's quite an interesting sociological question because a lot of you know the under 35s are very much against the war. The over 35s are very much in favour of the war, which tells you something about the Soviet aspect of this. So the Soviet mentality and the way that Soviet politics have warped people's minds for so many years, over and over and over again. Well, yeah, but I think you know, pulling us back slightly to maybe perhaps a more positive note in terms of actions that you've been taking and that others can take as well. You've you've set up a foundation that's supporting uh, refugees like we've we just spoken about. Are you able to share more details on kind of what you've been working on as part of that and, and how our listeners could maybe get involved if indeed they can? Well, when the war started, the object exercise was to Get about 250 million quid. 250 million, 250,000. I was going to say, that was a lot more than I was expecting. <laughs> That's very generous. Um, uh, 250,000 towards charitable causes. So, the first thing that we did was we did a charity auction with the Quorum Group, which took place at the In and Out Club in uh, May. And we auctioned off a, a, an original work by Bogomazov. Uh, another but a uh, reproduction reconstruction of a huge picture by Bogomazov and various other items and that evening raised 85,000 pounds then we did an evening with Sotheby's where we auctioned off items that the gallery owned that I owned jointly with other dealers and uh, our items donated by various artists and that raised another, I think, 116,000. And then we've raised another uh, 20,000 from Tifa. So that was, it's already a foundation. It was just, you know, a, we were a, a channel to give money to the UNHCR. I mean, either way, though, I think it's fantastic, obviously, being able to raise that amount of money in a relatively short space of time as well. But have you got anything else in the pipeline or is there anything more that you want to be doing as part of that fundraising kind of effort? I would like to do something else. I'm not sure what. I think we need to 
see how the next two or three months go because I'm sort of, I don't know how to put this, very, 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 very cautiously optimistic about the way the war's going. How do you think the war's going? Uh, it's so awful. I mean, I've so many of my friends have just lost their lives. They've lost their livelihood. Hmm. I do know a couple of people in the kill, but, you know, when I say I know them, I don't know them personally, they're relatives of friends. But I think the next two months are going to be absolutely fascinating. I think that the war has entered the critical phase. So if the Ukrainians retake Kherson, there's just no way the Russians can hide it. There's just no way. And I've just been talking to my mother, and who sort of sings slightly from the same hymn sheet as I do. And if thousands of Russian troops get encircled in Kherson, the Ukrainians have got to make it into the most massive PR victory. And they do so by being humane. Well, I think one thing that we do need right now is a bit more humanity. So hopefully that will be the case. And hopefully you are also right that the war will be coming to an end soon. And I'm sure everyone is is getting behind. But bringing us back to Ukrainian art and for our listeners that have hopefully found today's episode interesting and, and even if just, you know, a small uh, spotlight on art within Ukraine and what's going on in Ukraine. What's coming up in terms of the art world calendar or Ukrainian art that they can keep a lookout for? The next big event as far as, as Ukrainian art is concerned is the exhibition at Tisa. Right, well, we'll be sure to point our listeners in that direction. So hopefully uh, we can all add that to our diaries. But before we go today, can we maybe talk a little bit more about your collection? Because as well as being kind of the expert on Russian and Ukrainian art, I know that you've also built quite, you know, a sizable collection of Ukrainian art as well. Are you able to tell us a little bit more about that and, and what's in your collection? Well, I mean, the, the trouble is that, you know, like all uh, collectors, I end up being persuaded to sell when somebody offers me an insane sum of money. I once owned a work on paper by Bogomazov called Locomotive, and that was my favourite piece. And I, I bored the world on the subject, but I bought it in Paris and I paid exactly five times more for it than I should have done because I was up against ace negotiators and I wanted it far too badly so I bought this brilliant <laughs> drawing by Bogomazov and it hung in my house for a very long time and then I stupidly showed it at Maastricht and along came the Kroll Miller Museum and said oops we'll have that and it wasn't that they offered me a great deal of money for me they did they offered me more than I paid for it but it was I've got this romantic view of museums and what museums should and shouldn't do and um, anyway, so now it hangs in the, on the walls of the Coral Muller Museum. So I suppose I'm very happy about that. There's one artist that I really like who's called Maria Sinikova. She is, I think, 1890 to 1984. It's a pretty long life. She was all part of this very bohemian group of sisters, five sisters and three brothers who lived outside Kharkiv in this house called Krasna Palyana. And I've got a a portrait or I've got a picture of Venus by her and it's such a Ukrainian picture it's so it's so sort of quintessentially Ukrainian so it looks like a Ukrainian icon with a figure of Venus in the middle of it and I love that I've also got four watercolors by an Odessa artist called Evgeny Petrov it sounds like you've built up quite the collection but look James I think it's been super interesting chatting with you today and I'm just conscious of time so I don't want to keep you for too long but 
thank you very much for chatting with us about what's going on in Ukraine and your own experiences, as well as the foundation and how we can also get to know Ukrainian art a little bit more as well. So thank you very much. And hopefully everyone listening has found it uh, a very interesting episode. Always a pleasure. And ring me anytime you wish. (laughs) Will do. Now, that should just about conclude us for the latest episode of Temporary Mission. If you've enjoyed today's episode, make sure to hit like, subscribe or follow. And make sure to tune in next week where we'll be joined with a very prominent art collector, otherwise known as the Saatchi of the North. Until then, stay safe. Speak soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.